Section 25 of Hildebrand and His Times by William Richard Ward Stevens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 17 Pontificate of Gelasius II. Election of Calixtus II. Conference at Strasbourg. Council of Reims. Conference at Mouzon. Council of Worms the concordat and end of the investiture strife eleven eighteen to eleven twenty three part one the hopes of peace for the church and empire depended mainly on the character of the man who should be elected to succeed pascal henry's position was most critical in italy indeed where most of his time was spent in the castles which had belonged to matilda his authority was not openly disputed because it was not very prominently asserted but on the rhine the Main, the weser and the elba it was set at defiance and germany was a scene of deplorable anarchy infested by bands of robbers who laid waste whole towns and villages so that in many places the habitations of men were deserted and the houses of god closed the distress was augmented by physical disturbances earthquakes tempests and floods which were regarded of course by many as a divine retribution for the opposition of the emperor to the rights of the church the cardinals lost no time in making an election on the day of pascal's death they secretly assembled in the monastery of santa maria in palera on the palatine and unanimously chose cardinal john of gaeta the papal chancellor who reluctantly yielded and took the title of gelasius the second he immediately experienced the danger of his new position cencius frangipani probably on account of some personal grudge unknown to us was enraged at the choice of the cardinals burst into the conclave seized gelasius by the throat threw him down trampled upon him and then dragged him off in chains to his own castle it was soon besieged however by an indignant multitude who rescued the pope and conducted him with great pomp and joy to the lateran as gelasius was only a deacon the consecration was delayed to the ensuing ember week in the beginning of march henry hastened to rome hoping to overawe the pope and the cardinals before the consecration took place but gelasius warily evaded a meeting by quitting rome the day on which henry entered it he descended the Tiber to Porto, and having narrowly escaped capture by a party of imperialists, he had to leave his boat at night, and was carried on the back of a stout cardinal to the castle of San Paolo near Ardia. He finally reached his native place of Gaeta. Here messengers arrived from the emperor, imploring him to return to Rome, promising to protect him at his consecration if he would swear to make a friendly settlement of the question at issue, and threatening to use force if he would not consent the pope replied that such grave matters could only be determined in a large synod which he proposed to hold on october eighteenth eleven eighteen at milan or cremona to make a private contract on oath was inconsistent with his dignity and contrary to all precedent the emperor did not at all relish the prospect of a synod and resorted to the extreme measure of setting up an antipope he held an assembly of the people in st peter's and laid the reply of the pope before them 
the selection of milan or cremona for the synod was represented as a slight to the claims and dignity of rome and warnerius of bologna ingeniously argued that the election of a pope was invalid without the consent of the emperor it was then proposed that a fresh election should be made the name of the archbishop of braga was submitted and no other being proposed he was elected by the people the nobles a few of the clergy and three cardinals he was immediately conducted by henry to the lateran and forthwith consecrated and enthroned with the title of gregory the eighth two days afterwards on march tenth gelasius having been ordained priest and bishop was consecrated at gaeta gelasius acted with courage and decision he wrote to the romans charging them to abstain from all intercourse with the antipope and on palm sunday april seventh he actually pronounced anathema upon him and henry he obtained promises of support from the young duke william of apulia and robert of capua and in may rome was convulsed with terror at the approach of robert with an army whilst the emperor was absent reducing some rebel strongholds in the neighbourhood many of the people fled panic-stricken dreading a repetition of the horrors which they had suffered at the hands of robert guiscard's troops but robert of capua withdrew from rome almost as soon as he had entered it henry returned kept with sunday there june second and then moved northwards gelasius now ventured to return to rome the anti-pope was feebly supported and presently withdrew to sutri the malignity however of the frangipani against gelasius was still unsatiated on july twenty first cencius and leo burst into the church of santa prasede where he was celebrating mass a fierce scuffle ensued both inside and outside the church gelasius was bravely defended by his friends stefano normano and crescentius escaped from his assailants and fled on horseback accompanied only by his cross-bearer beyond the walls of rome the cross-bearer's horse fell and the cross was dropped towards evening the pope's friends went out to seek for him and found him in a field near san paolo in a pitiable state of exhaustion they brought him back to rome but he now determined to quit it until happier times should come quoting our lord's words when they persecute you in one city flee into another after appointing the cardinal bishop of porto as his vicar in rome and another cardinal as his vicar in benevento and commending the defence of rome to stefano normano he went down the tiber with a numerous company to the sea where he took ship and in a few days landed at pisa here he consecrated the cathedral church that miracle of beauty which had been in process of building for fifty years and confirmed the metropolitan rights which had been bestowed upon the sea by urban the second on october tenth he was at genoa here he embarked again landed at marseilles on the twenty third and thence proceeded to st gilles where he was received with respectful enthusiasm by the abbot of cluny and a large body of french and burgundian prelates and nobles the pontiff who in italy had to travel like a hunted fugitive was conducted on his journey through burgundy like a triumphant prince on january first eleven nineteen he held a synod at vienne and announced another to be held in march meanwhile he proposed visiting cluny but on the way he was seized with pleurisy 
and reached the monastery only to die within those peaceful walls he breathed his last on january eighteen after a brief pontificate lasting less than a year the death of gelasius was a check to the progress of the gregorian party in germany cuno of palestrina had gone thither as papal legate and at a great synod held in Köln in may eleven eighteen had proclaimed the ban pronounced by the pope on henry and his adherents he and adalbert of mainz were working vigorously in the papal interest when the emperor returned from italy and by dint of mingled threats force promises and concessions won back many of the nobles to their obedience just when the church party were looking forward to the synod appointed to be held at milan on october eighteenth they heard that gelasius was on his way to burgundy cuno then left germany to join the pope and the departure of the legate cleared the way for the emperor in his efforts to reassert his authority the dying pope recommended cuno as his successor but he declined the onerous and perilous office and suggested guido archbishop of vienne as better fitted for it by his high birth and practical wisdom and experience guido was on his way to cluny when gelasius died he was immediately chosen pope by the few cardinals who were present the choice was confirmed by some of the clergy and laity in burgundy and on february ninth eleven nineteen he was consecrated at vienne under the title of calixtus the second the election was irregular but it met with universal approbation and in rome it was ratified by the cardinals the clergy and the citizens the new pope was connected with the chief sovereigns in europe louis of france had married his niece alfonso heir to the throne of castile was his nephew the emperor and he had a common ancestress in agnes of poitiers and even henry of england counted him as a kinsman as they were both of them great-grandsons of richard the second the good duke of normandy guido was the first secular priest who had been elected pope since alexander the second the hildebrandine party had naturally been supported mainly by monks and the vehemence with which they tried to enforce clerical celibacy deepened the ill-feeling which had long existed between the secular and regular clergy the election of guido opened a prospect of softening this antagonism and the lay nobles were more willing to pay deference to a pope so royally connected than to a monk of humble and obscure birth new hopes dawned of bringing the weary strife between the empire and the church to a conclusion the cardinals at rome expressed an earnest wish to have a synod summoned as soon as possible for a settlement of the questions at issue and calixtus issued circular letters intimating his intention of holding one at rheims in the autumn all things at last seemed to concur in smoothing the way for peace germany was exhausted by internal war and disorder the emperor gratified the nobles by his gentle and conciliatory demeanour at a large diet which was held on st john's day at tribur most of them returned to their allegiance and the property taken by each side from the other in the war was restored envoys from rome and vienne asking for the recognition of calixtus were favourably received and although a formal decision was reserved for the synod of rheims the cause of the anti-pope was quietly abandoned on october first when henry was in strasbourg the abbot of cluny and william of champeaux the bishop of chalons 
one of the most learned prelates of the age, paid him a visit, and privately discussed the investiture question with him. They represented that the renunciation of the right would not involve any loss of real power. The kings of France did not invest with the office, yet the French prelates were bound as much as the German to pay taxes and to render customary services to the sovereign in return for their temporalities. At length, the emperor signified his willingness to renounce investiture with the ring and staff, on condition that his authority as feudal suzerain over the prelates was secured. Instructions were given to draw up a contract to this effect, which the emperor solemnly pledged himself to sign at Mouzon on October 24th, and the bishops did the like on behalf of the pope. The council was opened at Reims on October 20th, 1119. It was the largest and grandest which had been held in that city since the great council in the pontificate of Leo IX, and it was honored, as that council had not been honored, by the presence of the King of France. More than two hundred bishops were present, of which the majority, as was natural, were Gallican, but the Archbishop of Mainz, with ten other bishops from Germany, attended. Italy and Spain also were represented. From Normandy came the Archbishop of Rouen, and some of his suffragans, and from England came Rafe, Archbishop of Canterbury, with three suffragans, and Thurston of York with two. Thurston, indeed, had not been consecrated, having refused to make profession of obedience to Canterbury, and he now obtained consecration and the pallium from the Pope, much to the indignation of Henry I, who banished him from all his dominions. The Pope, surrounded by cardinals and prelates, seated on a lofty platform in the nave of the cathedral church, opened the council with an address in which, amongst other topics, he referred to the recent negotiations with the emperor. The two prelates then related the course and result of their conference, the abbot of Cluny speaking in Latin, the bishop of Chalon in French. On the 23rd, the pope, accompanied by cardinals and bishops, set out to meet Henry at Mouzon, a castle belonging to the archbishop of Reims. As they drew near, they were informed that the emperor was encamped in the neighborhood with a large army. The friends of the pope became suspicious and alarmed. The terms of the contract were carefully revised, and some obscure passages were amended. Four bishops and the abbot of Cluny then had an interview with Henry and some of his nobles at a manor-house near Mouzon. The revised draft of the contract was submitted to him. He fancied that he detected an artful attempt to deprive him of his feudal rights over ecclesiastics, burst into a rage, and refused to ratify the agreement. Next day the parley was resumed, but without success. The emperor was implacable and obdurate, and the Pope rode back to Reims mortified by the failure of his efforts for peace, just when he had so nearly grasped it. For two days he was absent from the council, recovering from vexation and fatigue. On the 3rd, October 29th, he reappeared, and at this session the old decrees against simony and clerical marriage were confirmed. The draft of a canon was submitted forbidding investiture by laymen with any ecclesiastical office, including the temporalities, under penalty of excommunication on those who conferred or received it. But the measure was too strong. Both clergy and laity offered a violent opposition to it, 
and on the following day it was presented in a very much milder form investiture with the office of bishop or abbot alone was prohibited and of church property no mention was made to the canon thus modified no objections were raised and thus at last the right lines had been struck out upon which the final settlement of the wearisome strife was to be accomplished the principle now laid down that the sacred office could be conveyed only by election and consecration but that the temporalities might be lawfully bestowed by lay hands began to take root in men's minds and the decree of reims prepared the way for the concordat of worms as yet however the emperor was in an attitude of harsh antagonism to the church he had not repudiated the antipope and he had contemptuously rejected the last and most strenuous endeavours of the pope to effect peace calixtus did not shrink from doing what he conceived to be his duty on the last day of the council four hundred and twenty-seven wax tapers were brought into the assembly the pope solemnly pronounced anathema upon henry the anti-pope and all his adherents the candles were extinguished and dashed to the ground after which the pope gave his blessing to the assembly and the council of reims was dissolved it might well seem as if little or nothing had been gained by the council and as if the rupture between the papacy and the empire was as wide as ever but it was not so throughout germany there was a general desire for peace and henry who had learned wisdom and moderation by experience made timely concessions to his opponents he no longer persecuted the adherents of calixtus nor did he exact any recognition of the anti-pope calixtus spent the winter in burgundy and about the middle of february he set forth for italy during april and may he made a progress through lombardy where the chief cities vied with each other in paying him honour on june third eleven twenty he arrived at rome entered the city in state riding upon a white mule and was conducted by the frangipani stefano normano peter leone and peter colonna to the lateran palace after a few weeks he visited benevento where he invested william with the duchy of apulia and received oaths of fealty from robert of capua and other norman lords in december he returned to rome and held an ordination in st peter's which peter leone had recovered from the antipope christmas day was celebrated in the lateran church and thus rome once more had a pontiff who enjoyed undisputed possession of the whole city and commanded the obedience of all the nobles the clergy and the people End of section twenty five